All right, so we are in our second to last week in our series, The Story of Moses. I hope that you have been learning a lot about Moses, about our God, and about yourself. So we'll be talking about Moses today. We'll talk about Moses next Sunday on Labor Day weekend. And then starting September 10th, we'll be in a new fall series. We're going to teach through the entire books of First and Second Peter. Uh, we're looking forward to that. So last week, we were in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. We learned about the Ten Commandments, how Mount, uh, Moses went up the mountain, and God gave him these Ten Commandments. Now, four chapters later, in Exodus 24, we read that uh, Aaron, Moses' helper, his two sons, who are priests, And the 70 elders of Israel also get a special invite to go up the mountain. So Moses is not the only one who actually goes up. 73 other individuals go up the mountain. In Exodus 24, you can read about this. They eat and they drink and they're in the presence of God. They have this extraordinary experience. They, the 73 of them, come back down off the mountain to the people of Israel. But Moses doesn't return. That brings us to Exodus chapter 32. Let's begin in verse 1. It says that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses said to them, Well, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This morning I want to talk to you about disappointment. This is actually my favorite time of the year, both when it comes to the weather, I love fall, but also when it comes to sports. I love what's happening in sports in the fall. If you're a baseball fan, we're headed towards the playoffs, although being a Yankees fan, speaking of disappointment, uh, I'm not as excited about the playoffs as I have been in past years, but if you're an NFL fan, you're pumped, right? It's back, college football, next Sunday I got my fantasy football draft, I'm super excited to pick my team, I'm looking forward to my season, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm also an English Premier League, a soccer fan, so that just started up too. So there's like all these hopes right now, and if you're a fan of an NFL team, your hopes right now are are at their ultimate high, right? Jets fans, any Jets fans in the room, you have unprecedented reasons for hope. Us Bills fans are hoping that you will experience disappointment uh, this season, but whatever happens, when the season ends, every fan base is disappointed, except for one. And so we learn through sports and through life to deal with disappointment. And there's really four sources of disappointment in our lives. The first one is ourselves. Often, you ever been disappointed with yourself? You ever let yourself down? I think it's the worst sort of disappointment. You have no one else to blame but yourself. Sometimes other people disappoint us. They let us down. They don't follow through on what they say they're going to do. They turn out to not be the person that we thought they were disappointment with other people. Sometimes our disappointment is not about you, it's not about me, it's just about life. Life can be disappointing. Sometimes we get a diagnosis, a prognosis, uh, we lose a job. Sometimes life is just disappointing. But then there's another way in which we get disappointed sometimes, and sometimes we're actually disappointed with God. And I think in some ways this is the greatest form of disappointment. And the reason is this, 
our level of ex- our level of disappointment is always connected to our level of expectations. Correct? If we have high expectation, there's a possibility for greater disappointment. For example, if my friends came to me and say, there's a great new restaurant in Syracuse, and this is amazing, and I get on Yelp, and I read the reviews, and it's like 4.8 out of 5 stars, and all the Google reviews are strong. I got all this expectation. If I go there and have a bad meal, my disappointment is greater than it would have been if you had never told me to go have a good meal there, right? Because our disappointment is connected to our expectations. But who in our lives do we have greater expectations for than God? And so we also, we, awful, we also often experience great disappointment. Now, in this passage, the Israelites, they're disappointed with God. Why are they disappointed, and what were their expectations of God? On Memorial Day weekend, my family and I were in North Carolina. We were there to watch the Syracuse women's lacrosse team play in the Final Four, and, and we had Sunday morning free, so we went to a local church called Summit Church, and there was a man named Brian Loritz, and he was preaching, and he was preaching from this text. And he talked about how the great expectations that people have of God really can be boiled down into two things. Number one, we expect God to be reasonable with us. And number two, we expect God to be available to us. We expect God to be reasonable, and we expect him to be available. To expect God to be reasonable means, God, we expect you to make sense to us. And everything that you do to make sense to us, we expect you to pay attention to our plans and our desires to do what I want. God, just be reasonable with me. And that expectation brings into conflict our greatest desire and God's greatest desire. Because our greatest desire is, God, do things my way on my schedule at my time to fit my agenda, my purposes, my plans. That's our greatest desire. God, do something for me. But God's greatest desire is not your comfort, not your convenience, not that you have everything that you want. God's greatest desire is to grow your faith and to make you holy like his son. And so we approach God expecting him to do certain things if we do certain things. And it's like approaching God like a vending machine. I put in my 20 minutes of prayer, my two chapters of Bible reading, my going to church every week, my tithing, I'm serving. I put all these things into the vending machine that is my God. And he better give back to me a healthy life, good kids, perfectly cooked steak, right? We all have our expectations of life that we want. And when we approach God like that, we reduce him to a vending machine, and we make him to be a formula more than a person. We like a formula because we know what we're going to get if we put something in. And we like a vending machine because we know if we put something in that we're going to get something out. But God is not a vending machine. He's not a formula. He's a person. To want a formula more than a person is to want religion more than relationship, to say, I'll do this, and then you do that. And listen, here's the danger. If God functioned this way, If God acted in response to our actions, if God did exactly what we wanted him to do, if he was fully reasonable and predictable, then it wouldn't increase your faith, it would increase your performance. You'd be really good at performing, but you wouldn't need nearly as much faith. And God's not as interested in your performance as he is in your faith and in your trust. So we expect God to be reasonable. We find out that he's not as reasonable as we wish that he is, and it leads to disappointment. Second thing is we wish that God, we expect God to be available when I need him and how I need him. He's sort of like an on-demand God. Look back at this passage. It says, they're talking about Moses, and they say, as for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, which is interesting. You see what they're saying? Moses brought us up out of the land of Egypt. 
Moses didn't bring them out of the land of Egypt. They just learned from the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Israelites have a theology problem here. It's not that they think too lowly of Moses. It's actually that they think too highly of Moses. They've put too much of their hope and trust in Moses, and now that they haven't seen him for 40 days... They're beginning to question God. Now, I know we often pick on the Israelites. They're like, these guys are clowns. Like, they can never get it right. What's their problem? But I want you to consider this. Moses has been missing now for 40 days, okay? 40 days, which may not sound like a long time until you consider the fact that when Israel got to the mountain, they had only been out of Egypt for seven weeks, 49 days. So basically, Moses has been missing for as long as the time that they were with him after the exodus. So they're having this crisis of faith in which Moses, who they had maybe ascribed godlike power to, is suddenly gone. And now he's not available. We want a God who is an on-demand God, but there will be times and seasons in our life where we will not sense his nearness, and he won't do things for us as quickly as we would like. The prophet in Isaiah 55 says it this way. He says, my, speaking for God, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, if God's thoughts are not our thoughts, then how can we expect God to always seem reasonable to us? If God is as great as we think he is, isn't it possible that he has reasons for what he's doing that you and I would not be able to understand or make sense of? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. And so the Israelites are disappointed. God's not being reasonable God's not available. So what do they do in their disappointment? They do the same thing that you and I often do when we're disappointed. They reach for their idols. It says that once Aaron built this golden calf, which, by the way, I know it says calf, but it wasn't probably a baby cow. According to what the commentators say about this passage, this would have been more like a bull that would have indicated strength because there was a bull god in Egypt. The god of fertility and strength was manifested as a bull, and so most likely this was a bull that was constructed out of wood first and then overlaid with gold. It says when they looked at this golden calf or this golden bull, they said, listen to what they said. They said, these are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They don't say, this is your new God. This is a replacement for Yahweh. They're not saying that this God, this golden calf is replacing Yahweh. Here's what they're not saying. They're not saying that Yahweh isn't a God. They're saying that Yahweh isn't the God. Does that make sense? They're fine with Yahweh being one of many gods, but they're kind of hedging their bets here and saying Yahweh is a God, but maybe this golden calf will help us too. And this actually gives us a glimpse into our own hearts because the most common and dangerous form of idolatry is not something in place of Jesus, it's always something plus Jesus. Most likely, you're not gonna be tempted to totally abandon your faith and run to another God. But what you and I are daily tempted with is to add something to Jesus. Jesus plus wealth. Jesus plus power. Jesus plus approval. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And in doing that, we're making those things into idols. Our gods, we're worshiping them. A few months ago, I mentioned this uh, podcast I listened to, a pastor named Albert Tate, and he talked about the difference between what we long for versus what we reach for. What we long for versus what we reach for. And he gave some examples. He said, we long for comfort, but we reach for a cheeseburger, right? 
or if you're at the State Fair, a deep-fried cheeseburger. <laughs> we long for meaning, but we reach for a new car. Our heart longs for importance, but we reach for more followers and likes on social media. We long for security, but what we reach for is a higher-paying job. We long for confidence, but we reach for a drink. We long for rest, but we reach for another show to mindlessly binge. We long for intimacy, but we reach for pornography. We long for power, but we reach for violence. And here's the point. Humans, humankind, we have deep longings, but shallow reach. We have deep longings that God has placed within each one of us, but we have a shallow reach. And when we're disappointed, we'll reach for anything. And what happens in this story is that what the Israelites are longing for is up on a mountain, covered in smoke and fire and missing for 40 days. That's what they long for, but all they can reach for is the gold in their ears. And we do the same. We have deep longings, but shallow reach. We desire God, but we settle for idols. So let's look what happens next in verse 7. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now look at this. If you're married here and you have children, you know exactly what God's doing. <laughs> You've done this too. When my daughters disobey, very rare, but when they disobey, I might say to my wife, let me tell you what your daughter did. Right? When they do something great, it's like, let me talk about my daughter. Look what God does. He knows this game. He's playing this game with Moses. He says, go down for your people. They're not mine. These are your people, Moses. This is your mess. This is your problem. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. He's almost mocking them. Oh, Moses, you're the one who brought them out. They're your people. Go down because they have corrupted themselves, which is what idolatry does to us. Idols are worthless things that make us worthless. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I had commanded them very quickly, 12 chapters later, days later. I mean, think about the first two commandments we talked about last week. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. I mean, these, they're crushing it. They, I mean, they, 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 they broke both of them within days. Quickly, out of the way that I've commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's not a compliment in case you don't know. Now, therefore, let me alone. This is like somebody who's like, get out of my way, that my wrath may burn hot against them so I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Here's the offer on the table to Moses. Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to finish them. I'm going to end them. We'll restart with just you. So what we see here when we get to this point of the story is that although we often get disappointed in life and maybe sometimes we get disappointed with God, you know, you aren't, you aren't the only one who gets disappointed. Sometimes God is disappointed. And at this point of the story, we see when God is disappointed. He says, I've seen these people, they're stiff-necked. Get out of my way so that my wrath may burn hot against them. And what we realize is that while you and I have expectations of God, since we do have expectations of God, we should not be surprised to learn that God also has expectations of us. And we're not going to get to read this whole story in detail, but let me just tell you, this story ends with death. There are people of Israel who are killed by the sword. 
And I know that sounds harsh and extreme, but I want to just point two things out to help us make sense of that. And the first is this. This is about a covenant that has been broken. A covenant was made in Exodus 20 between God and the Israelites, and all of the Israelites said, yes, we are your people and you are our God, and we will keep the covenant. And in this time in history and in this place, when a covenant was established between the Lord and a servant, between God and his people, there was a shared cultural understanding that if the servants broke the covenant, that their lives would be required of them. To break a covenant was to result in the shedding of blood. It was a serious enough thing that you could be held held responsible even to death if you broke the covenant. So if somebody dies in this story because of a covenant that has been broken, although it feels harsh to us, it was normative and expected to them. But the other thing that I want us to know from this story is that God actually gives every single one of them a second chance in this story. Because after Moses comes down the mountain and he breaks the, st- the, the tablets of law, which is symbolic of the way in which they've broken the heart of God and the law of God, Moses then stands in front of all the Israelites who have all been uh, caught up in this idolatry, including Aaron. He confronts Aaron. Aaron has this wicked, funny uh, uh, explanation. He's like, "Uh, Moses, I just threw the gold in the fire and a calf popped out. Like, that's literally what he says in this chapter. Moses stands in front of all the Israelites after letting them know that they've broken the covenant of God and they deserve death, and he asks this question. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? come to me. And you know what that was? That was the mercy of God giving the Israelites an opportunity to repent from their sin, come to the Lord's side, and escape the punishment that they deserve for breaking their covenant. And most of Israel came to Moses, but those that did not were put to death by the sword. And it leads to death. And we get to this point in the story and realize that we have expectations of God. God has expectations of us. Our expectation of God, be reasonable, be available. But if we really want to do some inside reflection right now, we have to ask ourselves this question. Have I always been reasonable toward God? Have I always been available to God? Now, what happens next is interesting. In verse 11, it says that Moses implored the Lord his God. He said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out? Moses is playing the game back to God. These are your people. You brought them out. If you destroy them now, what are the Egyptians going to think about you? What are the Egyptians going to think about us? What about the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know what Moses is doing here? I can tell you what he's not doing. He's not changing God's mind per se the way that you and I would try to change each other's mind. What he's doing is he is saying yes to God's invitation to intercede for his people. Moses is interceding on the behalf of Israel as their go-between, as their mediator. And it says in verse 14 that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, that idea that God relented from the disaster, that he changed his mind, we have to understand that in a very specific way. Um, you You know, the state fair is going and I actually already have been there twice. It wasn't my plan, don't judge me. Um, but I was going on Thursday, but then family came in town on Wednesday. You know, you gotta just go with whatever the Lord does. And so I went to the fair on Wednesday, and um, I'll just tell you it's the same, it's the same. Uh, but uh, on Thursday, I was there with some friends, some guys from church that we have a discipleship group, and we were in line at a truck that, that serves this thing called the bacon bomb, which is as glorious as it sounds. And we're waiting for our bacon bombs, and I hear Dave Caggy, who's with us, him and his wife Ashley and their kids come to the church. Dave says, I hear Dave say, those empanadas are calling my name. 
I said, what are you talking about? He goes, look, and right down the way, there's a food truck that just sells empanadas. He says, those empanadas are calling my name. Now, that, what he's doing there is he's using a very specific literary device. And I'm seeing if I pronounce it right. It's called an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, new word for the day for some of you. An anthropomorphism is simply when you attribute human behavior to something or someone that's not human. So were those empanadas literally calling his name? Hopefully not. <laughs> if empanadas are talking to you, we, we have a whole separate thing for that. Um, but what he was saying was, I'm attributing human behavior to those empanadas to explain the way in which I want to go to them. And we do this all the time, all the time. Well, actually, the Bible does this also with God. In order to understand God, we often have to attribute human behavior to God to try to make sense of his behavior. That's exactly what it happens in the Old Testament. Whenever it says God changed his mind, God repented, God relented, it's human behavior attributed to God to try to make sense of the way in which God sovereignly already had considered what Moses would do as an intercessor into his plans. So in other words, God has not repented, he's not regretted, He's not been talked into anything necessarily by Moses. Moses does not alter God's plan. Here's what Moses does. He carries God's plan out. Moses' intercession was always part of God's plan to have mercy on his people and to not pour his wrath out on, on, on them. And so we see that we get disappointed. We see that God gets disappointed. And the last thing this morning is this. We see that we have a God who never disappoints us. A God who does not disappoint. And there's two ways in which God uh, never disappoints us. The first one is this. God always faithfully shows us the worthlessness of other gods. It's one of the kindest things that God does to us, but often it comes to us in some of the hardest ways. Seasons of life where you lose things that you love, where you don't know if you can keep going, Often, one of the kind gifts of God in those seasons is that he's exposing to our hearts the worthlessness of putting our ultimate trust and hope in things that can be taken from us and things that we can lose. And we see it in this story. Something very interesting happens. Moses comes down. He takes that golden calf, and he melts it down, and he burns it up into a powder. He takes that powder, and he puts it into water, and he says to the Israelites, drink this down. Now, what is he doing here? And there's a couple things that I think he's doing here. This is not just punitive. It's not just Moses being like, you know, I'm going to do something mean. Moses is making them taste the bitterness of their own sin. This is the taste of sin, the bitterness of it. But something else is happening here, I think, according to what I've learned this week. Not to be crude, but anything that you eat or drink has to eventually go out of your body, right? You have to expel it, excrete it in some form, right? So here's what actually I think he's showing them, the worthlessness of their God. This thing that you were worshiping, placing your hope and trust in, this thing that you were accrediting with bringing you out of the land of Egypt, you're going to drink it down, you're going to consume it, it's going to go through your body, it's going to come out of your body, and then look at it, and then worship it. And look at that human waste, the human excrement, whatever it is, look at it and then say, oh, this is our God, that brought, it, brought us out of the land of Egypt. Moses is going to the extreme of helping them to see, look at the wastefulness of worshiping false gods. Your God you made by your hand, but Yahweh made you by his hand. You have to physically carry your God wherever you're going, but Yahweh carries you. 
Your God is made out of wood, but the one true God is the one who spoke all things into existence, including the trees from which your God is made. Your God is deaf, mute, blind, powerless. Your God is human waste, and yet we serve the God of glory. And God still wants to do this for us, by the way. He wants you to see, oh, you love pleasure most, you love power most, you love control most, you love... God will show us over and over in life, often through the hard times of life, the worthlessness of false gods. And it's actually one of the ways in which God does not disappoint us. What would be most disappointing about God is if he'd stop doing that. If God ever stopped showing us the worthlessness of things that we love more than him, then we would truly have something to be discouraged, disappointed about. I'm gonna ask Antonia and Alex to join me. The second way in which God does not disappoint is this. He always shows us the supreme worth of himself. Now, we get to this point in the story, we're almost done. The people have suffered for their sin. Some of them have died, but they have not yet satisfied the wrath of God. How could they? One of the commentaries said this. The Israelites broke a blood covenant. When you break a blood covenant, as we said earlier, you deserve to die. But God promised not to destroy them. So how is he going to sort this out? What could atone for the guilt of their sin? Was there anything that Moses, the mediator, could do? Well, let's look at the text to finish it out. Verse 30 says, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I, your mediator, on your behalf, will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. This is not a noble offer. This is a final offer. Moses is saying, I'm going to die in your place. Let's see how this goes. I will make atonement for your sin. So Moses returns to the Lord and says, the people have sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. This either is the book of eternal life or it's the book of natural life. But either way, Moses is saying, kill me, don't kill them. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What he's saying is everybody's responsible for their own sins. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you, which means the promise is alive. You broke your promises, I will not break mine. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Here's the key sentence. In the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Here's what I want us to see as we finish. Moses could not die for his people's sin. Why? Because he was a sinner. To name just one of his many failings, he was a bad-tempered man. We've already learned about this. He's so bad-tempered that on one occasion he kills another man. Next week we're going to see that he's so bad-tempered that he disobeys God and strikes a rock instead of speaking to the rock, and it keeps him out of the promised land. Moses is not a perfect man. He's a good man. He's maybe one of the most righteous men in all of scripture, but he's not perfectly righteous. And in order to make atonement for Israel's sin, he had to be perfect. God is willing to let someone die for someone else's sin, but the only sacrifice that God will accept is a perfect sacrifice, unstained by sin. So Moses couldn't do it. He came close, but he still could not make atonement for sin. So what hope did they have and what hope do you and I have? It's that little phrase in the verse that we read where it said, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. 
Now, it sounds a little bit like a threat, right? A parent who gets a phone call about a misbehaving kid and says, when I get home, it's kind of what it sounds like. But if you know the rest of the Bible, the day that the Lord visits is not a bad day for us. It's the greatest day for us. Because when he visits, he comes in the person of his son, Jesus. And on that day, God did fulfill his promise. He did visit his sin upon his people. But there was a mediator. There was one who was willing to pay the atonement and qualified to make the payment. And so as we've said many times in this series, when we get to this point in the story, here's what our hearts remember. There was a greater Moses. There was a true and better Moses. Moses was a sinful man. He could not atone for the people on that mountain despite his desire to do so. But Jesus, the sinless, perfect, substitutionary sacrifice, climbed a different mountain where God said, yes, you can make atonement. Your blood can speak for all of my people. And that's the hope that we have, the certain hope that we serve a God who never disappoints us. Listen, last thing I'll say, and we're gonna sing. Religion is you and me serving God with the uncertain hope that he is not disappointed with us. You ever felt that in your own life? Religion is you trying to serve God with the flimsy, shaky hope that God is not disappointed with you. But Christianity is serving God with the certain hope that he is never disappointing to us. Never disappointing to us. That he has done everything necessary for the atonement for all the golden calves that we bowed our hearts to. All the bitterness of sin that we've tasted in our life. All the worthlessness of the ways in which we've lived our lives. God has not given up on us. He's not broken his promise. Instead, he's provided his son to pay atonement for our sins that we might have hope in life. Let's pray together.